0: Good evening, Newark United Pentecostal Church, and welcome to our digital campus. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to be with you tonight. We broadcast six days a week, Tuesday through Sunday at 7 p.m., so we're glad that you have chosen to join us, and I am excited to be with you. My name is Stephen Beardsley, and I am a member of the pastoral team of Newark United Pentecostal Church and your speaker for tonight. To all of our first-time guests, or if you're just new to us, you can see scrolling across the bottom of the screen that you can find out more about us at newarkupc.info. And to all of you that have been with us for quite some time, I need to tell you up front, we may have a few technical glitches. Fingers crossed, no, but we are in some new digs for our digital campus. And so we've got a few new features, and uh, I'd be happy to see you comment on how you like them, dislike them. I've already seen a comment from Meg. Who's Bryce Hemstra? Well, that countdown that I used was created by somebody else. It was free, but he asked that there be attribution. So, Meg, that was my footnote. There you go. That's what it was about. And as everybody's gathering in, I welcome you. I thank you for being here. You can find out all kinds of information at NewarkUPC.info. And, uh, I would encourage you to go over there and check it out. You can submit prayer requests. If you're new to us, we'd love for you to stop by the card I'm New and just drop us your uh, information, whatever you're comfortable with, so that we can include you in our reminders for our daily broadcasts and just basically communicate with you as you see fit. And uh, all of you that are a part of us normally, that's where you can submit prayer requests. You can submit baptism requests. You also can partner with us in giving. And it's where we try to communicate with you in addition to our Facebook and YouTube channels. All right, as you all are gathering in, I want to turn our attention to tonight's thought and in, in our cycle and how things work. This is the beginning of the week. For some of you, this may be the end of the week and you know work starts tomorrow, et cetera. But this is the beginning of the week for the church. And uh, this week we start a new theme. But before I talk about that, let me kind of launch in with kind of a, an idea of something, a short intro, if you will, and then I'll uh, lay out for you where I'm going tonight. So the word pastor, have you ever thought about that word? Uh, I have. It's, it's a word that's been used a lot for me. In fact, I use it to describe myself and my contribution to the kingdom. So the word pastor is actually drawn from the agrarian or agricultural context of the ancient Near East. And refers specifically to a shepherd, one who cares for sheep. Did you know that other than referring to actual keepers of sheep, the literal meaning of the word, did you know that that noun, pastor, is used only one time in the entire New Testament? As much emphasis as church world places upon pastors, that's rather ironic. It only shows up one time, and it's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Goes roughly, God gifted to his church some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. When you examine this passage and you examine its context, you'll find that it's not even really referring to an office, but rather is a descriptor along with those other words of apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers for the types of people God has gifted to his church to equip his church. So i got a question for you at the outset here. If the word pastor does not occur within the New Testament as the leader of a church, which I think it's safe to say that given that it only occurs once and it occurs in the context of other gifts God gave to his church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, etc., who are the leaders? Or for us geeks, what words were used to describe the leaders of the New Testament church? Well, I'm glad you asked both of those very astute questions. I love it when you all ask smart questions. So there's two words that were used in the New Testament. Uh, I'll say them to you as you would in, in Greek, or actually probably not say them the way, depending on whether you use modern uh, pronunciation or the old Erasmian pronunciation. Presbyteros and episcopos, or you would know them as presbyter, elder, or bishop, overseer. All right. So let's let's work with these words in English as opposed to in the Greek. These are the two words that when you examine the New Testament, these are the leaders, these are the ones who care for the church in the way we think of a pastor. So the word elder is actually the word Presbyteros, elder, um, is used five times in the book of Acts. Acts 11.30, Acts 14.21, Acts 15, Acts 20 or 17, and Acts 21. Okay, the point tonight, the reason I didn't even put those up is I'm not wanting you to focus on that. Just know it's used five times, five contexts. We also find that the same word is used referring to a church leader three times in Paul's letters, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, and Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Now, I want to draw your attention to two already cited references in the book of Acts, two elders that I've already referenced because they're in the context of in Acts of Paul's churches, and that's Acts 14, 21, and Acts 20, verse 17. So when we look at the story of the early church, and we look specifically at the earliest churches, which would have been the churches that Paul established, here's what we find. Here's where it gets interesting. The term elder is always used in the plural when it comes to referring to single local churches. You never find a single elder you always find a group of elders. There were elders, plural, in the church in Jerusalem. There were elders, plural, in the four churches in South Galatia. Galatia, excuse me. There were elders, plural, in Ephesus. There were elders, plural, in Philippi. There were elders, plural, to be acknowledged in each city in Crete. Now, what's going on with this? Now, I need to cite here and and, and reference that The pastoral team is, this is not news to them. They've been hearing about this, but you as a church, you're going to hear more teaching about this over the next year or so. Um, But there's a backing behind why we are moving from pastor-centric to a pastoral team. Why we're moving from single individuals with lots of responsibility and therefore authority to a body ministry that is made up of teams. Uh, Dr. Eugene Wilson, good friend of mine, who we had on a Friday night with friends, has uh, written a book that's yet to be published, so I have no way to cite him, but it was a great consolation to me as I already knew this information as I would teach early Christian history at Urshan Graduate School of Theology, and, and I even tasked my father-in-law to double check that I wasn't twisting or turning the scriptures, and in fact, he found the same things. And then in conversation with uh, Eugene, he, he sent me a chapter of this book that's not yet published in which he lays this out as well. Now, some might resist this idea, this idea that everywhere you see the New Testament church existing, it exists as a group, as a team of leaders. Um, They might say, well, there's another category that's above the elders, above that team, um, kind of a hierarchy or an authority. And and, and these are the overseers. These are the bishops, the episcopals. Paul, however, in Acts 20, verse 28, Refers to the elders of the church in Ephesus as overseers. We find Peter in his letter writing and saying, "I'm an elder. The elders which are among you, I exhort, take the oversight of the church." So again, same word, same operation. Additional biblical evidence shows that overseer is simply another term for elder. For example, first, excuse me, Titus one five and seven both support the idea that the bishop is used, that term bishop or overseer is used interchangeably with the word elder. So what are you saying, Steve? Based on the evidence of the New Testament church, I'm submitting to you tonight that it is safe to say that every New Testament church had multiple elders or overseers, or to use our modern term, Pastors. The role we think of today as a pastor, one person, was in the New Testament fulfilled by a team, multiple persons. When you examine the evidence of church structures even today, it is also safe to say that a single pastor, one person, can only continue to grow the church if he or she builds a team. And this shouldn't really be that much of an aha moment because we see this principle present in the life of Jesus and his ministry. When Jesus began his ministry, and remember, there's nobody better than him. It's God himself in the flesh. He begins by building a team of 12. Then he enlarges it to a team of 70. And then you know the story as it continues to grow. You see his disciples, the apostles, these disciples that were part of the 70, who in fact tutored Saul, who later became Paul, and Paul understood this principle as they continued to plant and build and grow churches. And everything of the New Testament evidence bears witness that they did it with a structure of teams. This most successful church planner, the Apostle Paul, did his work as a member of a team. Tonight, I'm not focusing on it, but one of his most powerful words next to the word apostle was when he would call you his fellow laborer or his co-worker. Without a team structure and without a team culture, a church is limited and will stagnate. Now, as I already said, I'm going to do a lot more teaching and others will do teaching over the next year or so on this, and we'll get down into the details, but that's simply the background. And yes, I know we're about 10 minutes into the broadcast. You know me, I'm a jumbo jet. It takes me a little while to get off the runway, but we're moving. So this week, as I already referenced, our theme is fallible leadership and the value of community. And here's the basic premise, and what I'm going to talk about tonight kind of sets this up. Because leaders are human, everybody uh, pinch yourself, I don't care who you are, you're human, and no matter how much you progress in your walk with God, you will stay human. This means you're fallible and you're broken. We will be fixed in heaven, but he is not fixing everything down here. So because we're human and thus fallible and broken, we need to be in community and work within a team structure. So tonight, what I want to do is talk to you about an aspect of teams. Okay, that was kind of my tour de force, my quick overview of why is he even talking about teams. I want to now talk to you about an aspect of teams based in the example of, yes, you guessed it, the Antioch church. I want to talk to you about the coming and going of teams. The coming and going of teams. Now, If that doesn't make sense to you right now, stay with me. It will. All right. So here's what we're here's, I'm so excited. Whoo. Happy clap. The Lugos do happy clap. You've all heard about that. Happy clap. I've got some cool new toys I get to play with. So are you ready? We're live and normally we got to put it in the chat and all this. Nope, we don't have to. Tonight we're going to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Aren't you excited? Look at that. It's right there on the banner. Everybody. You need to give happy claps in the chat. You're going to be able to follow the scriptures even while we're live tonight. So I want to take us to two passages of scripture, Acts 11 and Acts 13. Now, most of you know Acts 13 because we reference it all the time in reference to Antioch and the church at Antioch. But I want to start back at Acts 11 to kind of set this up. And actually, it tells us how the church at Antioch began. This is very interesting. So Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26 says that, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. So this is the place we're interested in, namely Antioch. And so these believers have been cast out of Jerusalem and out of Judea due to the persecution of none other than Saul, ironically. And so the scripture tells us that they preached the word of God, but only to Jews. So the the, mass, the vast majority of these early Christians were cast out of Judea and out of Jerusalem, and they went to all these other places, but they only spoke to Jews. But some of the believers who went to Antioch, who happened to be from Cyprus and Cyrene, began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. Something about these people, something about their culture, their background, perhaps even their calling, caused them to see the Gentiles in a different light than all the others did. Scripture tells us that the power of the Lord was with this group and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent a man named Barnabas. And this is very important to know. This is the guy who sold his property. He's known as the son of consolation. He plays a very pivotal role in a lot of the New Testament uh, beginnings of the churches. And so they send Barnabas to Antioch. And his point, and I've often said this, not to be too mean to Jerusalem, but his point was (laughs) to check up on things. What's going on here? I can totally see Jerusalem going, we're losing control here. Let's figure out what's going on. Now, maybe it wasn't quite so bad, but there was a certain element. You'll see this pattern in Acts that Jerusalem would always send people to check up on things. So Barnabas is the one sent to check up on things. And so the scripture says that he arrives. And he sees this evidence of God's blessing. And so he's filled with joy and he encourages the believers to stay true to the Lord. And maybe that was Barnabas saying, hey, guys, now you're reaching the Gentiles. Make sure you don't go soft on doctrine. Make sure you don't leave the lifestyle behind. Make sure you're being faithful. All right, because you're doing something new here. All right. But then the scripture tells us that Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was strong in faith. And the implication here is, is that the way the writer of Acts says, and many people were brought to the Lord, is that Barnabas was there for a season. Now, what's important for us is the next verse. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, if you don't know the story of Saul, I encourage you to go back and read your Bibles. You can start in in, uh, Acts chapter 9, and you can read forward into 11. You'll find out how Saul was a persecutor and, and how that he came to the Lord and what happened and, and he went to Jerusalem, and in fact, everybody was scared of him because he was this great persecutor. Barnabas is the one who was, mm, I don't know, gutsy enough, brave enough, full of faith enough, something, that he took Saul into the apostles. But then the apostles got scared, and they sent Saul away from Jerusalem, back to his hometown in Tarsus. And I don't have the time to get into it tonight, but Paul was stuck in Tarsus up to approximately 14 years. So here's this guy. He has this Damascus Road experience and and he's this powerful, eloquent. I mean, he's he's educated out the wazoo. He studied with, with Gamaliel and now he's stuck for 14 years back making tents ostensibly in his father's shop, doing nothing. Barnabas remembers this young Christian. And when this happens in Antioch, Barnabas says, I need to go get Saul. He needs to come to Antioch. And so the scripture says that when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And we get this neat little parenthetical: It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians or Christ followers. Christianos is actually the way the Greek word would be; um, those of the partisans of Christ. Now, there's a few more verses in chapter 11 in which. Uh, we're described there's a famine. And so the church at Antioch sends an offering via Barnabas and Saul down to the church at Jerusalem. For sake of time tonight, I'm going to skip that. You can read that on your own. Then chapter 12 kind of goes in another direction. Talks about Peter getting, uh, James getting killed and Peter getting imprisoned and then Herod dying. And then we pick back up in, in Acts 13. All right. So let's lay Acts 13 out real quick and then I'll share my thoughts. So Acts 13 says, among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria. So we almost could read, when he found him, he brought Saul back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch. So the team that they did this with was Barnabas. Notice he's given the primary place. He's first. Simon, or Simeon, excuse me, called the black man, probably an African. Lucius from Cyrene. Menaean, very Jewish, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. And Saul. Scripture describes that one day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. And immediately this team of elders, these Prophets, these people who spoke for God, these teachers who broke down to the people what they needed to understand of the teachings of Jesus. They fasted and they prayed, and then this team broke apart. The men laid their hands on them and they sent Barnabas and Saul on their way. Now, here's what's fascinating to me, and what we as a congregation need to understand. If we are going to embrace a team structure, if we are going to transition from the responsibility is yours, Pastor Steve, you are the grand poobah. Everything rests on you. You have all the authority. You have all the rights and you have all the responsibility. If we're going to move to a team structure, which brothers and sisters, we have already moved to a team structure. We will continue to move to a team structure. We will not stop moving to a team structure. It's more than just a pastoral team. It is a culture of teams. It's understanding that every member of the body is a part of that body. If we're going to do that, we have to understand something about teams. Teams are less permanent than individuals. People come to teams and people go. From teams. And Newark, you're going to have to become comfortable with that. See, here's the problem. The problem with a pastor-centric model is whether we intended it or not, we begin to put our focus on the one we can see instead of the actual head of the church, the one we cannot see. There's even a mentality. In fact, my father has told me stories of this, my father-in-law. It comes from elders who I deeply respect. I understand what they were saying about commitment and determination. But there was ideas that if you went and started a church, you you went and you immediately, the first thing you did was you bought your grave plot because you were going to die there. Brothers and sisters, with all due respect to that commitment and that intensity, Can I remind you that if that is the barometer of commitment, the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and church planner of the New Testament age, failed? Paul rarely stayed in a city more than a few weeks or a few months. He didn't buy a burial plot, it's not the model. Now, I don't have time tonight to get into where that whole pastor centric and that whole model comes from. But suffice it to say that as we move from pastor centric to team structure, the church has to become comfortable understanding that there are going to be times that God, using humans, will call people to serve with us. Just as Barnabas, I believe under the leading of the spirit, said, you know what? I know exactly who would contribute perfectly in this city of Antioch. We're reaching all of these Gentiles. I need somebody who really knows his scriptures, but really knows his Greek. I need somebody who's really educated, but is very comfortable in a Greco-Roman city like Antioch. I know exactly who fits the bill. It is Saul. So what did Barnabas do? Barnabas went. He went to Tarsus. He found Saul and he called Saul to join the team. Now, it might have been only a year. I think it was probably a little longer than a year, but it was not years or decades. Barnabas and Saul work there with the team. That team grows everything would indicate that Barnabas was a lead person with that team, a very influential man. He came from Jerusalem. He had great wisdom. The scriptures also tell us he was wealthy. All the land that he sold, et cetera, he probably had money. So he knew how to run business. He knew how to run things. By the way, so did Saul. He was a tradesman. They had money in order for him to migrate and go and study in Jerusalem. He had Roman citizenship. So this senior Christian and this junior Christian this man with much experience and this man with experience as a as a Jewish rabbi, but no experience as a Christian. They work together with these others on a team. And then, believe it or not, shocker, the Holy Spirit says, break the team up. We need to break the team up. We got a good thing going here, Jesus. Leave us alone. We see this also, the other principle of this in um, Philip. He's in Samaria. He's having revival. People are getting the Holy Ghost and getting baptized. And then God sends him to the desert to speak to, you got it, one man, the Ethiopian eunuch. So God doesn't work the way we work. He doesn't look at things the way we look at things. And so we find this senior elder, Barnabas, and this junior man, Saul, God separates them. And the team embraces it. And so Newark, if we are going to be the church of Antioch, as opposed to the church of Jerusalem, Jerusalem never sent anybody away except to check on others and call them back. Jerusalem never left Jerusalem or broke up until persecution forced them to. If we're going to be the church of Antioch, we've got to transition our emotional and mental outlook that God's going to send people here to serve us to serve with us, to learn from us. And then there's going to be times that he goes, I have another work for them. Lay your hands on them and send them away. How you think about it? You're having a revival. There's this team of five or six that are working together. And that might not even have been the whole list. It might have just been a representative list. And so they're working together. And when you work together on a team, it's fun. Teams are a lot more fun because they're hard work because you got to communicate and, and, and you've got differences of opinion. But they're a lot of fun because you don't have as much responsibility. You share it. You're able to carry out the work together. You're going to hear more about that this week, about the importance of community and working within a community. And then God says, hey, it's time for something else to change. It's time for something else to happen. There was still a team leading Antioch, but Barnabas and Saul were not a part of it the coming and the going of teams. And so tonight I'm submitting to you for your consideration and for your prayer that is important for us to recognize and accept the reality that if we are going to operate like the New Testament church, okay, if we are going to operate like the New Testament church, if we're going to be team-centered, not pastor-centered, then we're going to have to get used to God sending people coming and God sending people going. This is a feature of teams. There will be people who will rise. I think back to when I first began to pastor Newark United Pentecostal Church. Wow, was I green. Wow, did I not know what I was doing. Wow, did I not know how to preach. Wow, did I not know how to teach. Brothers and sisters, I can do all those things now and do them well. Do you know how? Time. Experience. You see, teams are the excellent conduit to allow people to begin to contribute sooner than if they are the only person. It's safety. But one of the features of teams is, is that they're fluid. You can't lock things down. And I would submit to you and I will spend more time submitting to you over the next year or so that I think there's safety in that. I think there's actually a great benefit to that, but Newark, you got to get used to people coming and going over the last several years, you have had this happen. Some of you I think are understanding. You don't necessarily like it. I don't think the team at Antioch liked it, but you're understanding. Others of you are wondering, is something wrong? What's wrong with the leadership here at Newark? What's what's going on? Something's behind the scenes and you're getting suspicious. Nothing's wrong. We are going to be an Antioch church. And as we're working and as we're doing his will, we are constantly praying and listening to his voice. And at times he says, "Uh, I need this reconfigured. By the way, an ironic side thing. And yes, I am allowing you to ask some questions tonight. If you want to ask some, you can. If you don't have any, that's fine. I'm not going to dwell long on the broadcast. We're right at about a half an hour. Uh, But if you have a question that I haven't seemed to answer tonight, throw it up there and I'll try to answer it. One of the things that's ironic to me is when Barnabas and Saul leave, Barnabas is the lead and Saul is the junior partner. By the time they return back to Antioch, guess who's the lead? That's right. Saul has become Paul, and Paul is growing into what God had intended him to be. And yes, Barnabas and Saul had some conflict. I think it had more to do with the council at Jerusalem than it did with John Mark, but that's a whole other Bible study for another time. Bottom line is, though, God has a plan for each individual. He advances us, but we always are operating in the context of the body. And so I hope you read the passages of Paul, where he writes and talks about the body and each member doing its own special part in a new light. Think of it in the terms of teams. Don't think of it in terms of that individual who's so extraordinarily, we are so idolatrous. We like to worship things. We worship the only true God. There's only one whom we worship. And yes, we have taught you. My father who founded the church before me, and I said, we taught you not to worship us. And we've done everything we can to cause you not to do that. But we can even worship the office, if you will. The position. But it's pretty interesting. It's not God's structure. God did not just want a single person, but rather every New Testament church had elders. Even in leadership there was a team. And of course the whole body working together as a team as well. And so I want you all to understand that as we move forward in this transition, it will mean transition becomes the name of the day. Things are fluid. People are coming and people are going. Are we apostolic or aren't we? Do we believe the Bible gives us a template? Do we believe we're the New Testament church? And we need to follow the scriptures with regard to it all right none of you are blowing me up on questions i must have answered it tonight and so i will not belabor it i guess maybe i laid it out perfectly well so everybody's able to follow it i hope you enjoyed the new format and uh, i hope that um, if there's any negatives anything any problems anything like that feel free to get back to us and let us know about it but uh, we hope that you enjoyed this tonight and again Stay tuned, both on the digital campus and as we head back into in-person services in a couple of months as we move into the summer, um, we will teach you more and more, more detail about what I kind of give you an overview uh, at the intro tonight. But we have to become comfortable with the coming and the going of teams. Today, earlier, Regina and I did a broadcast, you can find it on our Facebook page and also on YouTube, regarding vaccinations. encourage you to go and check that out. Let me say at the outset, though, no one has to take vaccines in order to come to church. We're not going to force you to take vaccines. I am not demanding that. But go and listen to that broadcast today. It was informative. It'll help you understand some things. We break some things down for you. And then also how it affects the church. As most of you know, if you're following, we've got renovations occurring on our property, on our physical campus. Those are moving along. The rain's messed with a little bit. So is snow. But part of the roof is redone. They're redoing the other parts this week. And then we'll move forward into the phase of redoing the inside where the the leakage occurred and affected the ceiling. Uh, The entire church will be repainted, new carpet, new uh, seating instead of pews, pew chairs. Bathrooms are going to get redone. So we're really excited, but it's going to take us a couple of months here on that work as well. If this is your first time with us, we thank you for joining us. I hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. Those of you within the church, share this out. Share the broadcast. In fact, if we continue to use this medium, you'll see that we're able to schedule ahead of time. So help us share. This is part of how our word and our information and our series can get out to people and be available to them and be a blessing. All right. So to all of you, I appreciate you. I love you. And uh, I thank you for being with us tonight. God bless you. Have a great Sunday night. Enjoy the Sabbath tomorrow. Take a day of rest. And have a great week this week. We'll see you in small groups. Don't forget, small groups are this week as well. So broadcast every night, Tuesday through Sunday, 7 o'clock. Small groups start immediately following broadcast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We're going to have a great Friday night with friends. Looking forward to that. Lots going on this week. Be a part. God bless. I love you all. Good night.